2006, February 20th. Today is Lecture 31, A Tale of Two Worldviews, Special Relativity, which will begin in just a moment. All right. Like I said, if you are uh, just coming in, homework number four is being passed around. This is the fourth of the five homework assignments for this class. A little bit more visual assignment than normal on this one. Now, today we're going to begin a new unit, so we're going to skip doing the, intro, the beginning question. We're going to start Unit 5, which is going to be about cosmology, about space-time and the universe. So I've called this section The Machinery of Night about the Evolving Universe. To speak sensibly about the evolving universe, we actually have to visit a topic which we'd skipped over in Astronomy 161 and most of 162, but I always felt was badly motivated where it often ends up in textbooks, because you go through this whole section and then you don't use it for weeks upon weeks, and you kind of forget it. And really where this field comes into its own is in its proper position when we need to talk about space and time, and that's when we need to talk about the universe. So today is going to be the beginning of essentially three lectures, which are going to be covering the subjects of special and general relativity. Now the third lecture is really going to be how these apply to the universe in general. Today we're going to meet a tale of two worldviews, special relativity. We're going to see where relativity came from, both its historical as well as its physical roots. Now, relativity is one of those subjects that always puts fear into the heart of people, and I think that's kind of unfortunate, because relativity is, in fact, the correct way to view the world. And we're going to see that laid out over the next couple of days. In fact, much of modern physics and all of the physics of the universe is utterly inexplicable without resort to the theory of relativity by Albert Einstein. It's one of the grand achievements of, of the human intellect. So the key ideas today are as follows. We're going to introduce the central postulates of special relativity, namely that the laws of physics are the same for all uniformly moving observers. That means observers moving at a constant speed with no accelerations at all. And the second is that the speed of light is the same for all observers. The first one of these is just obvious. seems like a statement of the obvious. But sometimes statements of the obvious hide within them deep truths. The second one is utterly, utterly, non-intuitive, that the speed of light would be the same for all observers, totally independent of how they are moving. But in fact, it turns out to be experimentally true and is absolutely essential for understanding how the universe is wired together. And we'll see where this comes from in just a moment. The consequences of relativity, the consequences of these two postulates, is while all the observers agree on the speed of light and all the observers agree on, this, on, the, on the physical laws which describe motion, time, masses, and everything else, they will measure different times, different lengths, and different masses for supposedly the same phenomenon. This is what gives relativity its kind of spooky aspect when you first encounter it. It's not intuitive because we live in a slow-moving, low-gravity world. And so we don't, it isn't so much that it's hard, it's just that it, it requires us to think in a different way. Finally, the other con consequence that's going to come out of this is that the only observer-independent reality that exists is not space or time by themselves, but a conjoined entity called space-time. So today's lecture is a little bit abstract, but it's going to give you some insight, I hope, into one of the grandest achievements of the 20th century, namely Einstein's theory of special relativity. Tomorrow we're going to meet how that's applied to the law of gravity, and in fact the correct or new law of gravity is in fact the general theory of relativity. And on Wednesday, we'll see what the consequences are for understanding the universe as a whole. And it becomes the proper entry point for our discussion of the expanding universe and the evolution of space and time itself. 
Now, it's really essential when we start a discussion of relativity to, to bring up the notion of common sense, because, in fact, most of our notions about the world one would describe as common sense notions of the world. And, in fact... Albert Einstein had a nice comment upon this. He said, common sense is the collection of prejudices acquired by the age of 18. It's actually an authenticated quote. It took me a while to find the actual source. It was in the 1940s. But this is actually an important part of understanding relativity because, in fact, our common sense about how the world is put together is based on a special case of that world. Many experimental results are utterly inexplicable in the confines of the Newtonian way of viewing the world. They simply cannot make sense. They become intractable paradoxes which seemingly violate all of our intuitions. The problem with relativity is not that it is difficult. It requires us to have a new way of thinking, a new way of seeing the world in an informed way. And it really was, that was what wrestled with it because mathematically special relativity is actually very simple. In fact, it's far simpler, as Taylor and Wheeler said, than the, than the, um, the axioms of Euclid in plane geometry. But in fact, what really is the problem is not its mathematical difficulty, but simply wrapping your head around a new way of looking at the world around you. And of course, the second quote, which I've repeated now from the beginning of the course, is from the great samurai warrior of the feudal period of Japan, Miyamoto Musashi. It will seem difficult at first, but everything is difficult at first. Some of the things you're going to see are really going to want to twist your head off today and tomorrow. Just bear with it and go for the ride. You'll actually see where it leads after a while. Now let's step back for a minute and look at the way in which we view the universe. This is our common sense view of the universe. If we really wanted a common sense view of the universe, we'd all be Aristotelians and speaking Greek, because basically the earth at the center unmoving and the stars wheeling above us is in fact the common sense view of the world. It turns out to be completely wrong. Newton replaced that by actually giving us a mathematically quantifiable way of describing the interactions among objects. And he came up with this notion of something called forces, forces and accelerations. And through Newton's three laws, we can basically do all of planetary dynamics with certain key problems that remained unsolved until the early part of the 20th century. But for the most part, if I wanted to navigate a spacecraft past the planet Pluto, I just used the good old-fashioned physics of Isaac Newton. Now, in Newton's view of the world, underlying this, is actually a very rich view of the world. He basically sees it as follows. The universe, if you will, has a universal time clock. It keeps absolute time. And if we could hook ourselves into that time system, all of us, whether we're sitting on the Earth or on Mars, whether we're traveling fast or sitting still, would agree on what time it was. We could actually come up with some universal way of agreed timekeeping. We normally don't think about time. Time is basically nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. But in reality, we have to think about time as something physical, a part of the physical universe. What is time, really? Newton thought of it as sort of an absolute construct. It's basically there is a clock somewhere in the universe that everyone could set their watches to, and those watches would always stay set once we did that. It's kind of a mechanistic me metaphor, but it actually works very well to describe the way in which Newton's laws are expressed mathematically. The other pole of Newton's laws is he envisions space as also an absolute construct. Space was in three dimensions, up and down, left and right, forward and back. Those are the three right-angle directions that we have in three dimensions. And he saw it as basically a flat Euclidean space, meaning the laws of Euclid's geometry, you know, inside angles of triangles add up to 180 degrees, parallel lines never meet, inside angles being congruent, etc., all are behaved everywhere throughout the universe. 
Furthermore, there was an absoluteness to space in the sense that I could give you my location with respect to everything. I can describe the lengths of phenomena, and everybody would agree both on that length and on the location and on what time I made that measurement. So as Newton's universe is a, is a place of absolute time and absolute space. The universe looks exactly the same to all observers, regardless of how they're moving through it. Whether I'm riding on the Earth, whether I'm orbiting the sun on a spacecraft on an escape orbit to the stars, whether I'm cruising by at three quarters the speed of light, the world all looks the same. We all agree on the lengths of rulers. We agree upon the masses of swinging pendula. I agree upon the timing of phenomena, you know, when two lightning bolts go off. All the ways of observing and seeing the world and measuring it, events in time, events in space, are agreed upon. Now, when you, this looks like a very common sense way of looking at things. After all, in an everyday world, position and time is very deterministic. What time is it? Well, we look at the clock. All of us look at that same clock in the back of the room. We all agree that it's approximately uh, 40 minutes after the hour of 9 in Eastern <laughs> Standard Time. Furthermore, we all agree upon space. You're all sitting at particular locations in this room, and quite independently of the fact that I'm bouncing back and forth in front of the room in my usual way, you and I both agree on where we are. You also agree on when things happen. You agree when I slap the table, what time it was, and where I was when I did it. Or do you? Well, in fact, the people in the back of the room find out about the slap on the table a little bit later than the people in front. So even within this common sense notion of absolute space and absolute time, the fact that it takes time to transmit that an event occurred actually begins to introduce a little bit of a problem with this absolute view of the world. Now sound, of course, the difference between the front and back of the room is virtually irrelevant. And in terms of the speed of light, none of us can sense things occurring on the few billionths or tens of billionths of a second difference between the front of the room and the back of the room but that in fact is not true in all cases. So the result of this view of the world is that Newton's laws that describe the motion of objects, describe forces and acceleration and gravity, are all formulated from a very interesting perspective. It's kind of what I like to call an absolute God's eye view of the universe, in which you can see everything everywhere in its place in its time. You could basically take a snapshot of the universe and know exactly at 9.42 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the whatever the day this is in February, dot, dot, dot. This planet's there, that star's there, these photons are at this position in their flight through space, and so on and so forth. One can deterministically give you the position and timing of every event. This is a very common sense way of viewing the world. It is also not the way the world is actually viewed by real people in a real universe. In 1905, this view of Newton's basically stayed unchallenged for nearly 250 years. But in 1905, Einstein basically challenged Newton's view of the world. As a child, Einstein wrote that he asked himself the question, what would the world look like if viewed from riding on a beam of light? Seems like one of those silly questions that any children will ask you, and any of you who have done time with small children will know they will ask a great many questions. So what does the world look like riding on a beam of light? Sometimes the answers are surprising. In the case of Einstein, attempting to answer that question changed the world. What he did was he said, look, we can't take this God's eye view, if you will, of the universe. We cannot see everything everywhere at every instant. Because we are inside the universe. We are part of the universe. We see the universe through the agency of light, and light moves at a finite speed. 
Furthermore, I have no absolute frame of reference with which to place positions and times. I can only compare my observations of the world with yours. I can sit up here and claim I'm where I am and you are where you are and what time it is because I'm reading the clock and looking at my positions. But in fact, you can turn around and look at the clock and look at the room from your perspective and then we agree upon that. We compare our perspective of the room. But light moves, which is the only agency that we have to communicate, or the fastest agency we have to communicate, moves at a finite speed. And this means that, in fact, the people in the front row are seeing a very different thing at a given instant than the people in the back row, because by the time I've moved over here, the people in the front row see it before the people in the back row. They see it, okay, admittedly, maybe 20 billionths of a second later, but imagine they weren't in the back row, but they were a light year away. Then they would, people in the front row would see me moving back and forth. The people a light year away would not see that for one calendar year. That means that at that instant, they don't see the universe the same as you and I do on the short scales. Because we live in a slow-moving world in weak gravity with short time scales of communication, we don't actually sense the fact that our perspective has an irreducible relativity to it. So the result of Einstein's view of the world is that there's an irreducible relativity to our physical perspective on the universe. How the universe looks to me is because I must communicate with it with light. I cannot see instantaneously everywhere and every when. I must see it as it is now, and as that information travels to me by the fastest agency available, and that agency is the speed of light. And that's the key to understanding relativity is that I see the world through the agency of light, and therefore light limits my view and introduces an irreducible relativity of perspective. I cannot speak of the absolute state of space and time. I must simply compare my observations of the state of space and time to relative to your view of that as a fellow moving observer through the universe. That's why it's called relativity. Now, all the information we have about the world is carried by light. That's the way we see the world. The speed of light is very, very fast. It's about 300,000 kilometers per second, or for those of you who like a little exactitude, it is exactly 299,792.458 kilometers per second. Now, compared to everyday scales, we're slugs. We're really slow. 65 miles an hour, the technical speed limit on the freeways around the city here, is 0 0.028 kilometers per second, or about 9.3 times 10 to the minus 8 times the velocity of light. In other words, extremely slow by comparison to C, the speed of light. Light travel across this room is 30 nanoseconds, 30 billionths of a second to go from the front of the room to the back, another 60 nanoseconds for the light to go back and come back. So, for example, if I shine my laser pointer until I can see the red spot at the back of the room, and I let go of the switch, in fact, I don't see the light actually turn off until 60 nanoseconds after I release the switch. Human brains are actually really slow. It turns out human reaction time is measured in tenths of a second, maybe in tens of milliseconds, but certainly not in billionths of a second or nanoseconds. Human reflexes are really slow. So this means on everyday scales, I do not sense the finitude of the speed of light. I simply can't sense it. I have to go on to astronomical scales. The observation of the speed of light being finite takes time. For example, if any of you remember back to the, well, actually, nowadays, if you've ever made an international call that bounces up through a satellite, sometimes you'll get a slight lag going through that system. It's very slight. It's maybe a tenth of a second, two tenths of a second to go from the Earth 
up to a geostationary satellite to bounce down to Europe or South America or wherever it is you're calling. But every now and then, your brain suddenly gets sensible of the fact that there's a slight lag between you talking to the person down there and behind. That slight lag is the light travel time from geostationary up and down plus any switching overhead through the networks. Because that lag suddenly comes within that tenth of a second of human response time, you get this funny feeling in your head that something just didn't seem right. And that's basically your brain suddenly running into the speed of light. We have to, however, get to astronomical scales before it becomes sensible. I look at the sun now. I see the sun as it looks like now. No, I see the sun as it was eight and a half minutes ago. Because I see the sun through the agency of light. I don't see it as it is right now. I see it as it was eight and a half light minutes ago. That's what 150 million kilometers translates to in round numbers. I do not see the stars outside as they are right now. I see them as they are over their light travel time. So when I look to Alpha Centauri, I see Alpha Centauri as it was four years ago in round numbers. So light is finite speed, and it introduces this relativity which only comes into play if either A, I'm dealing with long distances and suddenly I start becoming sensible of it, or B, my speed starts getting fast compared to the speed of light. That kind of experimental work only began to be possible at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And those experiments began to show certain paradoxes in an inexplicable nature that simply could not be understood in the context of Newtonian physics. Let's see how relativity is postulated. How do we actually go about this trick? Well, Einstein basically boiled special relativity. It's special here because we're going to take the special simple case of two observers moving at a constant, unaccelerated speed. No gravity, no acceleration or deceleration, just a constant speed in a straight line. First postulate of relativity is that all the laws of physics are the same for all uniformly moving observers. I write down F equals MA. I write down the equations describing um, electromagnetic radiation. I write down the law of gravity, for example. Law of gravity is kind of a bad example, but it's one of those. We all agree upon those laws and how they operate. Now, uniformly here means with a constant velocity. The same direction, the same speed, neither accelerated nor decelerated. The implications of this is because I formulate it with respect to my position, there is no absolute standard of rest. There's no way that I can say, I am not moving and you are sitting still, or vice versa. So this relativity of perspective means I cannot define an absolute reference frame, an absolute coordinate system for the universe that tells me my exact position with respect to everything at any instant. I can only talk about how my position looks relative to my current position if I'm uniformly moving, I feel like I'm standing still. That's buried back in that old common sense notion that the Earth is at the center of the universe. It's part of this relativity of perspective. Furthermore, you all could consider yourself at rest. Now, there's physiological sensation, there's details. It's pretty obvious that I'm the, the joker walking back and forth in front of the room, and I'm not standing still on a sliding track, and you're all sliding back and forth. But you could imagine a circumstance in which I could contrive such a thing. There are interesting illusions which can be worked out using rolling tracks and things like that, in which, in fact, I'm standing still, but the entire room is just slowly moving back and forth. So all kinds of funhouse tricks you can come up with. What Einstein did was say that those funhouse tricks are not just simply tricks of the mind. In fact, buried in the physics must be the description that we really can't tell. <coughs> the second postulate of, of relativity is the most non-intuitive. It says the speed of light in the vacuum is the same for all observers regardless of their motion. So what this means is the speed of light is a universal constant. 
It's the same for everybody, whether I'm standing still or moving around. Since I cannot receive anything faster than the speed of light, that becomes my limiting speed for the problem. Now, the speed of light being constant in a vacuum, despite the motion, is totally counterintuitive. Imagine I'm walking this way and I shine my laser in front of me. Those photons are leaving my pointer at the speed of light. We'll ignore the fact the room's not vacuum. Now, what relativity argues is if I have a, a speed speedometer at the other end of the room, it would see C, 2.99792545 times 10 to the 8 meters per second, or whatever that number is. The second part is, I walk forward at a meter per second, the speed of light does not get faster. I walk backwards at a meter per second, I do not subtract a meter per second from the speed of light. It's still the speed of light. That's different than just about anything you could imagine, right? I get a wadded up ball of paper and I throw it. I throw it with a certain speed. That speed is different if I throw it while running forward because the speed picks up its speed of throwing plus my speed of running. But light doesn't do that. That's totally counterintuitive. But in fact, it's experimentally verifiable in every single case. If I could contrive such a light measuring meter, they're unfortunately too sensitive to work in an environment like this laboratory, I can verify the speed of light doesn't change depending upon the motion of my source or my receiver. Two observers moving at completely different speeds, measuring the speed of light from one laser will agree that the speed of light is the same. They do not add or subtract their speed relative to the source. It's always going to be C. That sounds really mysterious, and at some level it is. But in fact, it's telling us something very deep and important about the way in which the universe is actually wired together. And it's experimentally verifiable. If it were not true, certain things would simply not work. One of those turns out to be the GPS navigation system, which has to carry within it corrections for this very fact. Otherwise, it simply would not work as a navigation system. So, the bottom line of these two postulates is when you put them together, two different observers which are moving relative to each other at a constant speed are going to experience the world differently. They're going to see a different, slightly different universe. Now, they will all agree on the speed of light. <coughs> whether I'm standing still or whether my counterpart is moving at half the speed of light, we'll all agree, yep, C is C. Furthermore, we will all agree upon the same physical laws that describe the universe around me. We'll agree upon the ways to measure distances. We'll agree upon the ways to measure masses. We'll agree upon the ways to measure times. We'll agree upon the relationships among things like electric currents and magnetic fields and all those rules. But when we set out and compare our measurements of those same phenomena, so I've got a ruler or a, a orbiting planet or something else, we will disagree on the measurements. We'll agree upon the rules that govern those measurements and we'll agree upon the speed of light, which is the agency through which those measurements occur, but we will measure different distances, different times, different masses, etc. when we apply those rules through the speed of light. This is where relativity gets its spooky aspect. Let's face it, it's a common sense notion that a meter stick is a meter stick is a meter stick. How can two observers see that meter stick as being a different length? What is it about my motion that changes its size? It's, I'm not interacting with it physically at all. No, but I am observing it from a distance with light. 
and it's the fact that I'm using light to observe it from a distance, that when I compare to the person holding the meter stick from their perspective relative to my perspective moving relative to them, we disagree on the length of the meter stick because I have to use light, which moves at a finite speed, to make the measurement. The key of this all is the role of light. Light acts as the unifier in all of these phenomena. Now, there's lots of ways of doing this. There's lots of experiments. The easiest way to see how this works is to do a little thought experiment, what, what the Germans call a Gedanken experiment. What we're going to demonstrate is one of the spookier aspects of relativity, namely the relativity of time. The fact that my sense of the flow of time is not the same if I'm moving relative to someone. That our clocks don't agree, and therefore Newton's idea of a universal clock doesn't work. We're going to build a simple clock. <coughs> it's a photon laser clock. I have a laser, a detector, and a mirror. They're separated by one and a half meters. Light bounces from the laser into a detector and goes tick. Very simple little system. Just fire up a photon, single photon, tick. When the, when the photon hits the detector. It's a very simple light clock. This may seem like a contrived clock. In fact, certain types of atomic clocks and what are called hydrogen maser clocks operate on a similar principle. The path length followed by the photon is one and a half meters up and one and a half meters down. So the total path length is three meters. One tick of the time clock in this design is the time of flight of the photon, which is the distance divided by the speed which is three meters divided by the speed of light, which in round numbers is 10 to the minus eight seconds. That's 10 nanoseconds to go three meters. So, oops, up, down, tick. I've greatly slowed this clock down. So that tick would be 10 nanoseconds. So it's a very, very high precision clock. And it fires off every so as soon as another photon hits there, it fires off another photon from the laser. And so it just goes tick, 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 tick using the time of travel of a photon to measure its time interval. Very simple clock. And again, like I said, a certain types classes of atomic clocks and hydrogen maser clocks, the most accurate clocks, work on this principle. So this is not a completely contrived thing. Mechanical clocks would work the same way, but light is easier to see what's going on mechanically. Now, we need a couple of observers. We need two observers moving at a rate, so we'll pick, out, we'll pick on Dick and Jane again. We'd, Last saw Dick and Jane uh, in the black hole experiment, but before that, Dick and Jane are both on separate rockets and they're flying past each other at a constant speed such that the sum of their relative speeds is 0.8 the speed of light. Jane is carrying one of these photon clocks with her. Jack does not have, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Dick and Jane, uh, Jack and Joe was the previous one. Jane has got a photon clock with her, Dick does not. He's, sitting there, he's riding on the orange rocket over to the, over to the right. Jane is coming in on the green rocket over to the left. And the clock is saying they're going tick, 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 tick every 10 nanoseconds. Now, because they're in empty space, neither of them knows whether one is at rest. As far as Jane is concerned, she's at rest with respect to the clock. The clock's not moving at all. It's sitting right behind her there. Dick's moving this way. Their combined motion is 0.8 the speed of light. So I'm going to crank the speed very close to the speed of light. What they're going to do is as they pass by, Jane is going to watch how fast her clock ticks. And Dick is going to watch how fast the clock ticks as well. And then they're going to compare their results by communicating them later. So they're both going to make the observation, how fast is Jane's clock ticking? What do they see? What are we going to see in this experiment? Well, from Jane's perspective, the clock is sitting still. 
So she looks up there, and every, every 10 nanoseconds, a photon goes up and down, 3 meters, tick, 10 nanoseconds. Okay, so a 3 meter path length gets a tick. And she just sees that over and over again, the photon travels a 3 meter path length. Now, Dick, on the other hand, looks back at Jane's clock, but he sees Jane's clock traveling to the right here at 0.8 the speed of light, which means he sees the clock moving during that time it takes for the tick to occur. Tick, tick, kind of like one of those old Pong games. Well, in this case, however, the photon path, as seen by Dick, follows this long, drawn-out triangle. If he measures it, that's five meters. Okay, we'll see that again here. Fires off the photon, but it's moving over to the right. It goes up and it comes down. So that's the perspective that Dick has on this as Jane moves by at point eight at the speed of light. Is he sees the photon follow this five meter path. Let's put the pieces together. Jane's speed. Jane sees her speed is zero because she's sitting on the on the ship. But with the clock, but Dick sees her moving at point eight the speed of light. Dick, on the other hand, looks like he's moving at point eight the speed of light, whereas Dick thinks he's moving at zero speed. So D Jane is on the left, Dick is on the right. Both of them know the measure the speed of light. Speed of light's exactly the same. It's C for both observers. It's not C plus point eight or C minus point eight. It's always just C. That's the second postulate of relativity. Jane sees a path length inside of her clock of three meters. Each tick is three divided by C, or 10 to the minus eight seconds. She looks at the, at the little label on the side of the clock that says, hi, I'm a 10 nanosecond photon clock. She says, my clock is operating correctly. It is producing one tick every 10 nanoseconds. Dick, on the other hand, sees that photon go take five meters to go up to the mirror and back down. Five meters divided by C is 1.67 times 10 to the minus eight seconds. It's a different number. It's 16.7 nanoseconds. So the clock is running slow. It's taking longer to make a tick than Jane's, the label on the clock says it should. Same clock, same physics. Photon goes up, bounces off a mirror, comes back. The difference, Dick and Jane are moving relative to each other. Dick, in this case, is moving relative to the clock. Or the clock is moving relative to Dick, take your choice. They agree upon the physics. They agree upon the operation of the clock. They agree upon the speed of light. They disagree about the time that clock measures. <coughs> Who's right? They're both right. Jane sees the clock run on time. Dick sees the clock run slower. If, you, if the speed got larger, 0 0.9, 0 0.99, 0 0.999, the speed of light, that clock interval would get longer and longer and longer because the photon would appear to Dick to be traveling over that long path, but Jane just sees it go up and come back down. All that's changed is their perspective because they're moving relative to each other. It's called time dilation. It sounds spooky. It's observed. If you carried a high-precision atomic clock inside of a supersonic aircraft, took off, flew around, came back, it would be desynchronized compared to its companion twin clock on the ground when you landed. Because when you set yourself in motion, You've changed the way in which that clock does not, not so much the way it works, but now the perspective of that clock relative to the ground. 
the Global Positioning Satellite System, each of those satellites carries an atomic clock inside of them that's used as part of the Navigation Triangulation System. They are at 22,000 kilometers, 20,000 kilometers altitude orbit. They're not geostationary, they're a little bit below geostationary, so they orbit once every 12 hours. In that circumstance, there's a high orbital speed. Those clocks move at a different rate than the standing still twins of those clocks move on the ground. If the clocks were not taking into account that difference of rate, the global navigation system simply would not work. So the relativity of time is true for all kinds of clocks. It's even true for mechanical Timex clocks on your wrist. It's true for photon clocks. The conclusion from this is something very surprising. There is no absolute time. Time passes at different rates for observers that are moving relative to each other. There is no universal clock they can all synchronize to because the minute you set in motion, you change your perspective because of that motion. Now, when the speeds are small compared to the speed of light, it gets to be very difficult to measure that kind of differences. In the case of the clock moving at 0.8 the speed of light, the difference is between 10 nanoseconds and 16.7. Now, that's kind of a big difference. But at everyday speeds, we don't really care about the difference. We can't see that difference. But when you start getting fast compared to the speed of light, it makes a difference. For example, unstable atomic nuclei and unstable subatomic particles carry a clock within them. It's called the radioactive half-life. A neutron, for example, will only live for a half-life of about 13 minutes in a free state outside of an atomic nucleus. If, on the other hand, you could contrive to accelerate that neutron in a particle accelerator to 9 tenths or 99.9% the speed of light, you would observe that its half-life would, in fact, get longer, proportional to 1 over the square root of v squared times c over c squared. There's a number that you can actually sit down and compute. We actually can observe this. For example, there's a class of, of subatomic particles called mesons. They live very, very short lifetimes, tens of nanoseconds, hundreds of nanoseconds before they vanish into something else. If you accelerate mesons either incoming from a cosmic ray at near the speed of light or you create a meson inside of an accelerator, it will survive far longer than it would standing still because of the effect of the, what's called time dilation in relativity. This has been verified experimentally with atomic clocks on airplanes, on satellites. It's been, been verified using the clocks inside of subatomic particles and particle accelerators. It is an observed fact of the universe. It may seem weird, but it's real. And it all is a consequence of two things, that we agree upon the rules and that we agree upon the speed of light. If the speed of light was not the same for all observers, this wouldn't work. This wouldn't work this way. It would work the old-fashioned way, the way you'd think it would under Newton's laws, and it simply doesn't. That tells us that the supposition that the speed of light is constant for all observers is, in fact, true. It's the case. Non-intuitive, but it's the right way to view the world. So the consequences of relativity are are as follows. Observers that move relative to each other do not measure the same times. They do not agree upon the timing of events. If I, for example, if I sit there and take my hands, slap both tables simultaneously, an observer moving by at near the speed of light would see my right hand hit first, followed by my left, even though you all, sitting still relative to me, see it simultaneous. You don't even agree about the timing of events that occur sequentially or simultaneously. We don't measure the same lengths. If I'm holding up a meter stick, a person cruising by at 0.8 the speed of light thinks I'm holding a meter stick that's somehow short. The way they measure it, they bounce light signals off one end or the other and measure the difference of light travel time from each end. That's how you measure sizes. That's how you measure distances using lasers. We don't even measure the same mass. If I'm sitting here with a kilo, kilogram weight on the end of a string and I've got a little pendulum going on here, 
The pendulum period and the length of that pendulum arm tells me the mass of the, of the pendulum weight. Or actually, tells me the length of the pendulum weight. gives me the time of the period. You can measure in gravity what the speeds are, and that should give you some idea of what the pendulum mass is. A person traveling by in a spaceship observing my little pendulum experiment will actually see a very different mass. They'll see an actually heavier mass than I would see sitting still. All of these things are counterintuitive, but they're real. There's another in consequence of this. One of those is that energy and matter are equivalent. E equals mc squared that we've been exploiting for week upon week to power the stars, the little slight mass difference between four protons and a helium nucleus. Why do I say that the, I, how can I compute the amount of energy equivalent to that tiny bit of matter lost? It's basically due to the theory of relativity applied to such things as the energy content of objects. Furthermore, it gives me another pretty interesting insight. If I could contrive a perfectly massless particle, there's only one speed it can move at, and that's the speed of light. Photons are massless. They move at the speed of light. For a long time, people thought neutrinos were massless. It turns out they've got a little teeny tiny mass. But if they were massless, they would move at the speed of light. They couldn't move any slower, and they couldn't move any faster. Because the speed of light is a maximum speed. It's basically not just simply a phenomenon speed like speed of sound. It tells you something about the way the universe is actually wired to get. Now, how do we put these pieces together? How do we talk about absolute space and absolute time, which Newton talked about? How do we now view these from the point of view of Einstein's way of looking at things, through the eyeglasses of relativity? To remind you, in Newton's view, Newton viewed space and time as separate and absolute. There was space in three dimensions, and then there was a clock somewhere that kept absolute universal time. The universe will look the same to all observers. We'd all agree upon the timing of events. Dick and Jane would see the clock moving at exactly the same pace on the rocket ship experiment. <coughs> They'd agree upon the lengths of meters, masses of little balls hanging on strings, etc. In Einstein's view, space and time are relative. Space is simply how I measure distances. Time is how I measure timing between events. Those things depend upon whether you're moving or not. It turns out, however, that they are united by light into something which is a little bit combined entity called space-time. Space it's neither space nor time. It's space and time put together into a single four-dimensional entity. Now, what Einstein concluded from this, which appears to be the correct way of viewing the world, is that only space-time has an absolute reality independent of the observer. If I measure not distances in space or intervals in time, if there's absolute space, I measure the size of meter sticks. I was measuring an interval in three-dimensional space. If I measure two events, one after another, I'm measuring intervals in time. No moving observer would agree either upon the length size nor those two events in time. But if they combined the distance between those two events and the times to those two events, that combined space-time interval would be invariant. I would see the same one as someone moving. The difference is, is that the combination of the two components stretch and squeeze in various ways so they add up the same. So for example, if I had two flash bulbs on the end of a meter stick, they're simultaneous in time, but they're separated by a meter. A person traveling along at point A at the speed of light would see one light flash then the other. They're no longer simultaneous. Therefore, it's a longer interval between them, but the meter stick would be shorter. 
The square of the meter stick times the square of the, plus the square of the time interval would be exactly the same for both observers. So it's space-time that is independent of motion, not space separately or time separately, and that's the key bit. And all of this is brought together because of light. Light is the unifier. All the information that we have about the universe is carried by light. Okay, sound works, but sound is slower. All observers see the same physical laws. All observers measure at the same speed of light, totally independent of their speed. If I'm moving towards a light source at 99.9% the speed of light, I do not see 1C plus 99.9%. I see C. If I'm moving away from the light source at half the speed of light, I do not see the light moving half as fast. I see the light moving at C, not a half C. doesn't add. It's always the same. Now, what light does is it unifies these disparate ideas. Okay? Space and time get unified into space-time. It isn't the sizes of things. It isn't the time interval between things that matters. It's the space-time interval between things that stays the same. That's the absolute reality. It isn't the energy and the matter that are different. They're equivalent. How are they equivalent? Through the speed of light squared. Again, it's a little more subtle point and hard to demonstrate in a class like this, but that's basically what's going on. The unifier, the linkage between these otherwise separate ideas. Newton had a conception of energy. He had a conception of matter. He didn't realize he was talking about the same thing. They're unified via light. He had a conception of separate space and a conception of separate time, but he didn't realize he was talking about different aspects of one higher reality called space-time. Now, we've talked about the rules of physics. I've talked about uniformly moving observers, but I haven't once mentioned gravity in this class, except maybe in passing. And that's because I've dealt with the special theory of relativity. It's the easy one. Relativity is restricted to uniformly moving observers. That means observers that are not accelerated. They're not speeding up or slowing down, nor are they standing in an accelerated reference frame due to gravity. <clears throat> now, what do I mean by an acceleration? Well, what Newton would have said, but if an object is accelerated by gravity, Newton says, well, they're feeling a gravitational force. There's something that's reaching out from the center of the Earth and pulling us down towards it, or it's reaching out between the Sun and the Earth, and they reach out and they grab each other in kind of a universal gravitational dance and move around their common centers of mass. That's an accelerated system. That's an acceleration in response to a force. Well, we know what an acceleration is. That's a speeding up or a slowing down. But what's a force, really? Newton didn't really explain what gravity was. It was just this kind of feeling of an action at a distance. It took Einstein eight years to get from special relativity to generalize the theory of relativity to embrace the theory of gravity. When he was finished, between the years 1905 and basically 1913, 1914, he had completely revised the laws of physics. He discovered not a way of incorporating Newton's gravity, but of throwing it out completely bringing in a new theory of gravity of which Newtonian gravity is but a special case. And we'll see that tomorrow. <clears throat>